Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to the Lanky Guys. We are the word on the hill. We're ready to rock your socks and make it real. The Father podcast Peter's, in your face. Father Peter's trying to bring up the tone. It's a very rainy, gloomy day in Boulder, and we have been discussing politics, which is a sure recipe. <laughs> For a melancholy podcast, dude. So I'm using all my energy to try to get happy and peppy <laughs> and talk about good, happy, holy things. But dude, this holy is, things, friends. This get off is, Facebook for an hour. <laughs> Listen to our podcast, dude. This, if, if I've learned anything from Scott Powell in the last com- the last bit of conversation that we've had is that if you are um, paying attention to your Facebook feed, you're most likely <laughs> disillusioned with the world. Yeah. <laughs> and that's true. And so so rather than paying attention to your Facebook feed today, pay attention to the RSS feed called the liturgical cycle. Oh, I see what yeah, you did there. Simple syndication. The common lectionary <laughs> has something to speak to all of us. It does. And God bless the church. Dude, it's you know what I love? You know you know what I know? What do you know? What I love is that we are always going to be anchored by the church. I was walking by a, a, a Catholic building the other day, okay. and the amount of... An- no, you know what it was? I don't. I really don't. I had a dream the other night, <laughs> and I thought it was real. I've been actually speaking about Isn't this. Isn't that the best? I've been speaking about the, this reality that I walked by this Catholic building the other day, and around the outside were all of these carved stone... Um, anchors and that the anchors okay. were precisely the the demonstration and I was super confused because I was like why do they put so many anchors on this building this Catholic building but I realized it was just a dream <laughs> and that, that in fact what happens is that the Catholic Church really is the anchor for all of reality hot dog like because all the waves are gonna come yes all, all of this stuff is going to huff and puff and try to blow our house down absolutely and I mean, this is the one promise that Jesus gives us pretty assuredly is that you're if you follow me, you're going to carry the cross. And so I, I thought whenever, I thought you were going to say the one promise that he gave us is that um, I will be with you until the end of the age. Well, yeah, that's the other one. promise. <laughs> <laughs> he gave us a couple promises. <laughs> Granted. <laughs> Go therefore and proclaim this to all nations. Mm. So welcome to you nations. Well. I think in a day when I at least am overwhelmed with bad political news, let's look at somebody else's political dirt for a change, <laughs> and we'll go to the scriptures. <laughs> this is which really is, it's nice. We have given. I mean, it, this is this is part of the job of the scriptures is that they, anch- like you said, they anchor us back in reality because it is so easy to look at the world and read Facebook and Twitter and get disillusioned, and so God is calling us back to the scriptures and saying, "No, I am in charge." I am not in danger. God right. is eternal. I will remain. The church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No matter uh, what anybody uh, tells you, the church remains. It right. will get beat up and it'll get punched once in a while, but it's going to remain and that's okay. Which is why this podcast is almost a comfort every week that we just get to come back and, and focus on the things that are real and that are true and that are supposed to inform everything else we do. Dude, Father Brady used to um, talk about the this uh, movie with uh, Elijah Wood called Green Street Hooligans. Not Elisha Wood. Elisha Wood. That's his, oh. his younger brother that nobody talks about. Uh, so Elijah, Elijah Wood, it, it was this American who goes and like ends up getting hanging out with a bunch of... Um, English hooligans, which are um, a bunch Classic. of people people who fight for um, for Justice. soccer teams, soccer teams, and uh, and so <laughs> and he and and Father Brady, I always loved this quote. He said, "Yeah, it was like I got punched in my face, 
And I realized in that moment that I wasn't made of glass. Oh, that's a good line. Ooh. Yeah. That's a good line. Yeah, and I'm going to hang on to that. Yep. So we're in the 29th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Uh, our first reading is from Exodus. <laughs> nice. Movement of people. Do we need a little reggae on such a rainy day? Dude? We do. I mean, it, it makes me feel like sunny. And like I'm Jamaican. drinking red stripe beer on the porch <laughs> of my Jamaican cottage. Oh man, that sounds lovely. It doesn't that sound lovely? So it's Exodus yeah. seventeen eight to thirteen. Wow. All right, our, you really made me long for something I definitely don't have. Our responsorial <laughs> a, a, a Jamaican song. Jack with red stripe beer. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I know. Oh, on a pepper sanded beach. Oh. Oh man. Uh, our responsorial a little our responsorial psalm. Thanks, man. Is coming from Psalm 121. I rejoiced when they, they said, said to me, let, let us go into the house of the Lord. Lord. 121 verses 1 through 2, 3 through 4, 5 through 6, and 7 through 8. And the response is coming from verse 2. Dude, we were, I, I tried you to see look, how I pushed through on that? Dude, that was amazing. I um, I was trying to like fi- find a YouTube video of how so cheesy that song was. But dude, I remember. And you dude, found stuff that was even better. Even better. I saw some Christian breakdowns. It was amazing. So yeah. our second reading is 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 4, 2, y'all. It's a big chunk. And our gospel, not very long, is from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. The parable of the, what is it called? Unrighteous the, uh, the, judge? No, the uh, the the persistent persistent widow. widow. I was gonna say the annoying woman, <laughs> the persistent <laughs> widow. I just couldn't remember it, dude. I just have to say Luke one eight one eight. Luke eight eighteen one eight one eight. Well, yeah, well played. One eight one eight one eight one eight one eight one eight. Well, good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. We should talk about Exodus. Dude. And I okay, so I I I did some I did some digging around here and tried to find some commonalities between the reading from Exodus and the Gospel, and we'll we'll talk about the response oil in the second reading Ooh. as well. But there's some there I I want to I, I hope this makes sense. I want to try to unpack what I'm seeing here. Okay, and I'm sure I didn't make this up, but there's there's some there's some textual imagery. Okay, the way that the texts are actually set up, for which context is our is our key. Which always, context is the key, you know that. What? That's was, not funny. I was laughing to myself this morning. I was like, I was like, what would the lanky guys be if we decided that we were not going to do any context or try to reduce context as much as It'd we can? It'd just be you talking about 80s songs. <laughs> that's, that's pretty a, much it. Th- that's about it. But which would be interesting. That's its own podcast. Yeah, I just was laughing. Day. So, because the fact that the very first thing you said is context means that we're on the same page. You better believe we are. Okay. So this is a very famous reading that you heard before. But I want to. The context is actually. I didn't. I didn't. It's one of those passages that we're all familiar with this passage, but I don't think I even realized quite where it fell in the context of of the story of Exodus. So it's Dude, Exodus I, seventeen. Well, I um I've been, I joke with the CU buffs that about this particular particular passage every oh, nice. time I say mass for them. So I say mass for the team um, before their games and then I'm like I'm like I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be holding my hands up. Ah, I'll be nice. praying over you guys. And nice. you know what? I I, I I am not sure that they are entirely familiar with I'm sure this they're passage. Not. They're like, uh oh. <laughs> well and neither are the people listening because we haven't told them what the passage is. So this is this passage it's next to seventeen. Um, and it begins by saying in those days it says Amalek, it's the Amalekites. So it's this tribal people, the Amalekites. They're from. Uh, they showed up way back in Genesis. They're these tribal people. They tend to be enemies of the people of Israel. They tend to fight against them a lot. They live down in the Negev. 
which is in the region where Sodom and Gomorrah was. Right, which, right. you know, not making any direct connections, but it, it gives you a little bit like it should put out some warning flags. So the Amalekites, they're always, they tend to be trouble for Israel. So the Amalekites came, it says the Amalekites came and waged war against Israel. So they're attacked. And this is this moment. They've come out of uh, Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. It's in chapter 15 that they sang that great song of victory and that song of salvation. Um, that they're, they've come out and God has saved them. And then here in chapter 17, while they're out in the wilderness, before they get to Mount Sinai, or around, or they're around Mount Sinai, but he hasn't gone up to get the law yet, they're attacked by this group called the Amalekites. And so Moses said to Joshua, who's going to be the one who eventually leads the people into the promised land, he says, pick out these men, and tomorrow we're going we're gonna to fight back. We're going to engage them in battle. And it's that point where he says, I'm going to stand at the top of the hill, and I'll have the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him. He engaged Amalek in battle, and Moses climbed up to the top of the hill with Aaron and Hur. Aaron, remember, was his sort of right-hand man. He's from the right. priestly tribe. And then Hur, this is interesting, it, it, it is thought that Hur is actually the son of Caleb. Do you remember who Caleb was? No. Caleb was the one who, he and Joshua were the two spies that went to spy out the promised land. And they were the only two that came back with the, yeah, it's going to be really hard to get this land, but God has has promised us he's going to be with us. Caleb was also the name of my uh, first guitarist in my band Audio Hallucination when I was a freshman in high school. Classic. So Moses is up there, and they're fighting the battle, and as long as his hands are raised... They succeed in battle, and when his hands get weary and tired, they start to lose the battle. And, and he so, was he was on a hill, just kind of yeah, up yeah. above them, and then yep. and so then they ended up setting stones underneath to hold, and then or he did he get priests? I can't remember how it. He went. got Aaron and her. Oh yeah, it's it's these two. <laughs> did you just, did you just say that? Aaron and her. <laughs> did I say what? That these two guys are holding up his arms and yeah. I wasn't paying attention? No, I don't think I did. I said he took them up to the mountain. Oh, okay. But that's why they were up on the mountain. Okay, So that good. when he got weary and when his arms got heavy and tired, their job was to hold him up, which, you know, there, there, I, there's so many great spiritual lessons. Like we need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us fight the battle and we're made to do this together in communion with each other. And it's really great. And it's a great story, and I like that your reference to the the football team. I'm, I wish they got the joke. I know. I, I I also think of guys who have those kind of like ape hanger handlebars on their on their motorcycles. You say ape hanger? Ape hanger, dude. Ape hangers are with those oh, motorcycle those, yeah. the, the, those those motorcycle bars that are like way above their heads. Yeah, and those like are huge. insane. I always think of Moses <laughs> when I see those nice. guys driving by. They're fighting Aaron a and her, dude. They're fighting a little battle. Be kind. But here's what's interesting about this. So take this for whatever you will. I was just looking at how this works kind of in the text. So take this kind of together. Okay. This is actually happening at the end of a little section of text. So in chapter 15, it's when they get out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, and the Egyptians are basically defeated, right? Okay. Once and for all. Yeah, yeah. Then they get to the desert, and from the middle of chapter 15 through the middle of chapter 17, you have the three cries of Israel. Oh. Remember the three, cri- the three complaints, right? They complain about water, they complain about bread, and they complain about meat. And it's in those three complaints and three cries that God answers them, right? He gives them water from the rock. He gives them manna from heaven. He gives them quail that eventually comes out their noses because <laughs> they eat too much of it. Which all three of these, they kind of correspond to Jesus's three temptations in the wilderness, right. where Jesus is faithful three times, where Israel is unfaithful three times and tests God and all this stuff. So there's some connections here. But you have these three stories about God being faithful despite the complaints of his people, and he provides for them. Those three stories of God's faithfulness, the three cries or complaints, are bookended by two attacks. 
They are attacked on one end by the Egyptians, remember, who are chasing them, trying to destroy them. God saves them by wiping them out in the Red Sea. And they're bookended on the other end by this attack of the Amalekites, from which God spares them by Moses having his arms up and Aaron and Hur sustaining him and persevering and fighting through this whole thing. So God's um, providence, his caring for his people, is bookended on both sides by threat and attack. Oh. Which is telling us something, I think, about the way that God's providence works. It's going to be threatened. It's going to look scary. We're going to get attacked. There's going to be threat on all sides. But in the centerpiece of it, it's God's loving providence. He won't let us hang out to dry. He's going to take care of us. And that's where this story actually fits. It, 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 you can't understand really what this story is doing unless you see it in the context right. of God providing. And of course he's going to sustain them in this fight with the Amalekites because that's what he does. He just showed that with the water, the bread, and the quail. That's who God is. And so if you've just experienced this God feeding us, God giving us drink, God giving us meat, well, of course he's going to fight the battle for us. Right. Of course he's going to continue to sustain us. But that's sort of the schema. So God's providence framed on both sides by threat or mm. threat by attack. And that, I think, is going to help us understand the gospel when we get there. So we'll leave it at that for now, I, unless it, you have something. It reminds me of, a, of a, this Buddhist parable. And, a, and a, there's a guy, and he starts getting chased by a tiger. And he's like, uh-oh, and he's running. He comes to a cliff. And he, as he looks over the cliff, there's a tiger at the bottom. And so he climbs out onto the cliff, and there's a tiger at the top, tiger at the bottom. And behold, in front of him. The perfect flower. That's profound. <laughs> I love that. Well, it's like it's like, dude, you're gonna get you're gonna get eaten up from what's behind you, <laughs> from what's true. before you. But right there, there's actually the, there's a providential reality as you're hanging off the cliff. So if it was a Jewish story, the flower would sprout an arm and a sword and mow down both the lions on, the, <laughs> on each side. And behold, in front of you, the behold. perfect sword. <laughs> yes, right. The providence of the flower. Which and and that that's an appropriate segue into the psalm, Psalm one twenty one. Which the response, so we sang that kind of corny. Well, it wasn't a corny line. Our singing was corny. The word of God is never corny. That's an important point. But the response <laughs> that we get is, "Our help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth." I used to. I was which, chanting this when I was um, mm. hiking the Camino, as I was going up and down these hills, and oh. I was starting to like get injured, and I was like, "My help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth." And it's actually a really good rib- rhythm. I can if, see that if if you're like struggling while you're hiking. Yeah, I can see that. Well, I love that. I love the connection. I mean. Uh, you know, your your Buddhist analogy with, you know, there's threats on all side. It's our Lord who is going to help. Right. But then that first, uh, what is it called? The strove, right? Strove. I li- strove. Strove. I lift my eyes up toward the mountains. From whence shall my help come to me? Think about that for a second, in light of the first reading. Mm. People are engaging in battle. They look up to the mountains oh. and what do they see? Moses with his arms up with two bros on his left and on his right. But do you see the key though? What is saving them? Where is their help coming from? The transfiguration. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. From God. What is their help not coming from? Man. Yeah, it's not Moses. He's not the cause of their victory. He's not the cause of their salvation. Aaron and her holding up his arms, that's not what's doing it. That's a visible sight. It's a channel through which God has chosen to work. But what this psalm is reminding us of is don't look up at the mountain and see Moses up there and think Moses is the reason that you're succeeding. Don't think Moses is your salvation. God chose to use him. I raise my eyes toward the mountains. From whence shall my help come? Not what I see, it's what I don't see. 
Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Mm. And he's chosen to use Moses and Aaron and her and, you know, all the rest of it. But don't be deceived, I think, is one of the, the, the brilliances of putting these two readings together with each other. And I, I like it, too. It says, he, don't let your foot be moved. Um, he will not let your foot be moved because he doesn't fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. he, like Moses he, wants to. Yeah, with he his keeps arms up. Israel and he doesn't slumber or sleep. Like, he just doesn't do it. He doesn't. It's, he, he needs no melatonin. <laughs> no. When he eats turkey, when he eats the tryptophan and the turkey at Thanksgiving, Ain't he's no not cashing in front of the football. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of that scene. Speaking of Elijah, I remind, remember when Elijah goes and challenges the gods of um, of the, the northern kingdom, the gods of Baal. Yeah, he's yeah. like, where's your god? Is he sleeping? Is he in the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Is he over there getting a cup of coffee? Yep. You know what I mean? That yep. he's, he's responding. This is a response to that. No, yep. our god doesn't sleep. He doesn't disappear from us. Right. But but the idea, I mean, think of Elijah. He's not. He's making fun of the gods, but he's like, why, don't, why isn't he here? And the answer of the Psalms is our god is always here. Whether you mm. see him or not, whether you're aware of him or not, he mm. is always present. Right. He has got your back. Right. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not, he's there. Right. And that's that's where our salvation lies. Which is probably a good segue into the second reading. Yeah. Second Timothy, we've been talking a lot about the context of Second Timothy, and this is kind of like all of the advice given to a bishop um, yeah. kind of at the end of Paul's life. And so, yeah. so a young bishop who's just beginning his ministry in a certain sense. Which I actually think that this is a very appropriate expression for the lanky guys. It says, um, all scripture is inspired by God, yeah. profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Mm. So there you go. That and that's that's one of the things I love most about this podcast is that, and there's a I mean the Sunday readings they're they're very rich but there's you know we definitely come across these Sunday I mean we do every single one of every what is it fifty two weeks yep in a year for three years so all the cycles and gosh there's all these times I'm like well I I don't know what the second reading has to do with anything and I would love to just skip it. And I listen to a lot of podcasts and right. different things. And, you know, it's, it's easy to like, well, we're going to focus on the gospel. Or we're going to focus on this reading. But the challenge of this podcast is, no, if Second Timothy is true, if Paul means what he says, and all of the scriptures is useful for teaching, for correction, for refutation, for training in righteousness, then we can't skip any of these readings because all four of them are meant to tie together and they have something to speak to us. And they're woven together for a reason. And, Which well, is just beautiful. It's a beautiful challenge. Yeah. Because then it reminds me, okay, no, I got to put the work in to right. whatever this is. Well, this is the thing. And the, and, and the second part of what it says is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Mm. Like, worldview comes in story. And the, the stories that we talk, and the reason why we get into the context so intensely, is precisely because... The way in which Israel reacts to all of these things are supposed to be evidenced for us on how we're actually meant to continue to engage. Right. So um, are we in constant prayer? Are we actually Mm. saying God is the one who's going to continue to provide? If we start making compromises to the nations and saying like, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring in compromise and I'm going to forsake my integrity so that I can join myself to... Mm something that's going to look like it's going to be politically savvy, then we're going to really end up in a lot of trouble. Which is interesting. The way this passage ends is exactly what you're saying. Be persistent, whether it's convenient or inconvenient. Convince, in season or out of season. In season or out of season. And I'm thinking about the first reading. Yep. I mean, put it in the, into that narrative. 
they are faithful in fighting the Amalekites, not because they think they're super powerful and militaristically strong. They know they're not. They know they're they're nothing. They've just they're they're refugees escaped from this country. They're they're nobody with no food or water. Nothing, or much in, less in the middle of a desert. Yeah, much less weapons of battle. And they're like, all right, but God is going to fight. Right. And then in a generation or so, they're going to enter into the promised land. And if you read the story of the books of Joshua and Judges. It is basically the story of them doing the opposite of what they do in this reading. Right. They stop trusting in God, and they begin to make compromises. And they're like, well, it's okay if these people are sort of settling the land with it. We don't really need to teach them about God or drive them out of the land or do what God has asked us, because it's really hard. And it'd probably be safer if we let them be here or if we compromised here or if we created an alliance here or there. I mean, the story of Joshua and Judges is one of the darkest parts of the Bible, because they don't trust that their help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. They trust that their help is in their own strategizing, their own compromising, their own figuring out, okay, how do their we Their own live? political representative. Yeah, and it's rough, and, and you see where Israel goes. It's these moments in Exodus 17 where all seems totally lost, and it seems absurd to actually go forward with this plan— because we don't have the power to do it. Well, no, they don't have the power, but their help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That and when they like, rely on that, they win. That sounds like every good American movie. It's true. You know I mean? The underdog, man. The, the underdog who has no Absolutely. hope of winning. Like That's the story of all sports movies. Of saying like, absolutely, we're gonna like you know it's okay. We're gonna try, and even in the face <laughs> of no possibility of us winning, yes. it's like it's like I I looked at um I I caught I caught McFarland USA as I was trying to go to bed last night after confessions, and I'm like weeping like a child in my <laughs> in my chair because I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. everybody who the people who were the most discounted who had no possibility are precisely the victors out of the their profound suffering and neglect and yeah. the one who is willing to be their champion. Yeah. And that's why we, why we look at Jesus and we say here's one who's going to be the champion of the refuse of the world. Yes. Of the of the ones who say like, right. you know what? I don't really know. I I don't have anything really solid going, but I trust in the Lord right. who made heaven and earth. And that mindset I mean, look at the Magnificat. That is the mindset of the Magnificat, the God who lifts up the lowly, who casts down the mighty from their thrones, right. who sends the hung- rich away hungry, who fills the empty, who fills the hungry. You know, the, yes. the, the, the thinking of something like the Magnificat is that if God is sovereign in the world, nothing has to remain as it is. Right. If God is sovereign in the world, I'm stealing that from a professor of mine a long time ago. If God is sovereign, nothing and no one has to remain as they are. God can change the circumstances of anything and anyone. That is the Magnificat that we're supposed to pray almost daily, right? You pray it daily in daily. the, in the, the uh, whatever it's called. Office, your, your divine thing. office. Your divine bravery. office. Yeah, I mean, that is the mindset that Christians are supposed to approach the world right. with. God can upend what we see anywhere in the world, which is brings, a good segue. brings us into this place to where yeah. we are called to say, are we going to persist in it or are we going to bail on it? And, Let's and, persist. And so the, pers- the so the Lord said a parable to this effect that they always pray and not lose heart. My friends, do you guys? I, I cannot tell you if I have anything that I am constantly fighting in my life, 
and trying to help people as pastor is to not lose heart. I will tell you that I spend the majority of my time in my pastoral work saying, hold, hold, like yeah. hold on, don't lose heart. And when people start to lose heart, I just try to point out the effects of them yeah. losing heart. Like, yeah. and, and because, yeah. because when you say, okay, I'm going to bail, I'm done. I'm going to go and I'm just going to make the compromise. I'm going to go do the thing. The evidence of like how freaking destructive it is is so apparent to people but then but they but they don't recognize it until you have a third party who says hey do you see what a kind of effect this has in your life yeah so so that being said what have we already said is the most important part of this podcast we do it every week and i wake up context context right Um, the con sorry i say you all poorly (laughs) for that that was my fault. The context. Context. Absolutely. You cannot understand this reading unless you have the context. So, Ooh. and and I'm again think in terms of this little paradigm that we established of the first reading, right? God's providence surrounded by threat on one side, threat on the other side. Okay. Drop and dime. So think about this paradigm. Uh, now we've <laughs> well done. Um, we've been chugging along through the parables in chapter fifteen through sixteen through seventeen, right? Right. Now, all of a sudden, the church in, in the liturgy skips over a few paragraphs. So we, we left oh. off last week in chapter 17, verse 21, right? We talked about what was going on. The 10 lepers. Remember that? The 10 lepers and the nine, yeah, nine, and the one, came, nine went away and didn't listen. And, and the one came back, yep. And then, um, yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah, no, we left in, um, Dude, I forget my, where, where the reading ended last week. My favorite verse in scripture, you repeat it all the time, is da-da-da-da-da. da 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 But right after that, and right before this parable that we have, I want to read what comes in the middle. Because okay. it's pretty important. Ooh. It's verse 22 of chapter 17. He said to the disciples, so he's just had this scene, it's not a parable, the scene of the ten lepers. He's healed these people. Some have reckon, One has recognized it, the others didn't. And then he said to his disciples, the days are coming... When you will desire to see one, wait, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, lo there and lo here, do not go, do not follow after them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one to the other, so will the son of man be on his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be like in the days of the son of man. They ate, they drank, they married, they were given a marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed all of them. Likewise, it was in the days of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They ate and they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. And on the day that Lot went up from Sodom, fire and brimstone rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And he says, on that day, let him who is on the housetop with his goods in his house, don't come down and take them away. Don't try to save your stuff. And likewise, him who is in the field, don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to gain his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, one will be left. There will be one, two women grinding together. One will be taken, one will be left. And he said to them, where, Lord? He said to them, where the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. He's like, things are going to get real bad, real bad, right. real ugly, really rough. And then verse chapter 18, verse 1, right where we show up. And then he told them a parable. To the effect that they might always pray and not lose heart. He just told them about the worst news they could possibly hear. Right. People are going to put their faith in things. It's going to be like the days of Noah. They're going to be putting their faith in all sorts of different things. And it's going like to be the- so urgent that you're not even going to be able to turn backwards. You right. better run and you better not put, look back. 
and he looks in their eyes, presumably, I'm speculating, he looks in their eyes and he sees this fear and he sees the temptation to lose heart, to give up, to be like, I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know if I can do that. How can I, how can I survive? And he tells them this parable. But knowing the context, I think, paints the parable that he tells. Because it's in response to something. Right. right? And he said, in this certain city, there was a judge who feared neither God nor regarded man. And there was a widow of that city who kept coming to him and saying, vindicate me against my adversary. So to set up this scene, he tells this story, (laughs) this parable about a judge who fears neither God nor human beings. Um, and the thing that's interesting about that, so I, I'm doing a little digging on Middle Eastern traditions. And, Dude, and I love it when you pull up b- books from behind your back. <laughs> like, like I feel like he would like uh-huh. have these secret weapon. I wish you guys could have seen how he just did that just now. Well, there's two things. Number one, this um, this parable has a has a, I think a pretty clear parallel in something that happened in the book of Sirach about oh. uh, uh, about a judge. Oh, where was what was the Sirach one though? Quoheleth. Yeah, Koheleth. Um, about about um, it says it's in it's in Sirach, it's chapter thirty five. He will not ignore the supplication of the fatherless nor the widow when she pours out her story. He talks about the tears of the widow running down her cheek, um, and then the, the the prayer of the humble will be accepted. The prayer will be heard when it reaches the Lord, who is the righteous judge who executes judgment. So. I don't know. There's a little bit of a parallel here. Of, yeah, there's yeah, a between the unrighteous judge and the righteous judge. Totally. And saying, keep going because, yep. well, this is the thing is that, is that the parable is, is help, it, it helps reveal man's heart to himself. So if, if I will tell you pastorally, do you know how many people are angry at God? Probably a ton. A- and what they, and they do not perceive God as the just judge. They see, perceive God as an unjust judge who is bringing the wrath who yeah. is who will not relent upon his holy people? I mean, it's like it's like Teresa of Avila. She fell off of the back of the gate. Oh yeah, and she said, "If this is how you treat your friends, God, it's no wonder you have, have so, so few. few of them." And like yeah. and like, but that's our spirit towards God. So it's yeah. like it's like okay, guess what? He says this, this guy doesn't fear God or man. Okay. Well, which is He's interesting, unanswerable to anyone. Which is interesting. Well, two things. Number one, just one thing to point out in the Jewish tradition. Um, there was an expectation in the way that rabbis told story. There was the parable. The, the word parable is misa'al, misa'al in Hebrew, or masa, masa'al in Hebrew, should always be accompanied by what's called the nimsal. The masal was accompanied by the nimsal. Okay. So the nimsal means parable, okay. but the nimsal was always the little extra bit of information that you needed to interpret the parable. Oh. And it's expected that you know what happened in the end of chapter 17 to set us up for this. That's the nimsal, the extra bit of information that you need to kind of interpret the interpretive keys Ooh. to this. Now, the other thing that's going on, so you, you talked about neither fearing God nor man. In the Middle Eastern culture, it, this is an honor society. Right. And one of the things that you would do in an honor society, the, the two appeals you would really have at your disposal toward a judge is you could say, for the sake of God, have mercy on me, or do this, or, or please render this. Yes. For God's sake, do this. Or you could say, for my sake, or the sake of my family, please be merciful, or render this judgment. And so basically, the two means you have at your disposal for trying to gain mercy from a judge or someone else, the parable begins by saying this man had regard for neither of them. 
which means someone going before him had no recourse to literally anything. Which there's in, no defense in, in our culture. It would be expressed for the love, man. Yeah, absolutely. For the well, love of are, God. We still say Please, that, right? Absolutely. We take it for granted and we say it tritely, it comedically. But it's a real for the sake of God. For the, for the sake love of, of God. Right. But if you don't love God, that's not a good recourse for right. you. So this this woman is is in a tough boat. Now the other thing I learned about that was just studying Middle Eastern culture <laughs> is that um you you know I was doing know. that while I was eating some pomegranates. <laughs> I was eating your sour grape bright crawlers yesterday. <laughs> oh, yeah, Sorry that's about right. that. <laughs> but there uh, you is owe me. in a culture in a, in a culture like the Middle East, right? It is an honor culture, and one of the facets of an honor culture is the way you treat women. And women, although, and I think we've talked about this in the podcast, they don't have many legal rights. Like, they can't have property, and, and they, they have a pretty sorry state in life, especially yeah. widows. There is a sort of idea of chivalry in the honor culture okay. that exists. And I was reading a guy named Kenneth Bailey. He's my favorite scholar. I like Ken. And he was talking about the time that he was in. Is the scholar that spent most of his life in the Middle East trying to understand these cultures. And he said he was living in Lebanon during the uh, the Civil War back in the, the late 70s through the early 90s, right? Yep. The Lebanese Civil War. And uh, he said there was, a, there was a point where the militias were kidnapping male Westerners in particular and using them for ransom. And it was really dangerous for him to be there. And so for a period of like four or five months, he literally couldn't leave his apartment. He had to be basically be locked up there because he was the prime target for getting kidnapped. But interestingly enough, his wife and his daughter could leave the apartment and go get groceries and do stuff because it was understood in the culture that women were not to be touched. You didn't kidnap a woman. You didn't mistreat or abuse or do those things to a woman. Oh. That's the understanding. Which is just sort of fascinating. So there's the, he, he was also telling this this uh, little story about, um, you know, he was walking by in his neighborhood during this time. There were all these heavily armed militiamen that hung out in this particular doorway and they would plan their things and, and you know, threaten people and all these things. And there were these little old ladies who would go and just scream at them every day. If you were a man and you went and called out these militiamen, you would get shot dead on the spot. Absolutely. But these little old ladies, they just kind of laughed and they're like, oh, ha, 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 you know, just keep moving on because it was understood, like, you don't do that to a woman. There right. is this, this right. cultural sense of, of chivalry. And so in that sense, why, why do I bring on, any of that up? This woman knows she has a little bit of clout. She knows that she can do some stuff that a man in this society couldn't do. She can push her luck a bit further. And I think it even says in the parable that he was getting so ticked off he wanted to strike her or he wanted to hit no, her. No, no, like no, no. What does it say? It Lest says, she come and she strike me. Yeah, it says he's afraid that she's going to hit him. Which actually the, the, the word says punch. Like you yeah, can yeah, interpret yeah. it, punch me in my face. Yeah. Like, Isn't like, it fascinating? It's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's this woman, and, and she, you know, this man who cares neither for God nor for himself. There's no recourse. Presumably, the, the parable presumes that this widow has been unjustly treated, that it's there is some vindication <laughs> to be made, that there is an injustice that hasn't been served, that she's in the right, that is pre, sort of presupposed, right? Yeah, uh, to blacken an eye, to give a black eye or strike in the face. Yeah. To bring someone to submission by constant annoyance. <laughs> or to put under strict discipline, to punish, to treat roughly. <laughs> yeah. So she's going to punch him in the face. Yep. Right? Give him a black eye. But she's so persistent that this evil, not God-fearing, not human-fearing man eventually is worn down. Right. right? And, of course, the, the punchline is if, if an evil, non-God-fearing, worthless judge is 
is can be broken down in that way by persistence. How much more so is that like God? I mean, the, the woman is the hero of this story. Um, th- there's a there's a a, a um, Bible commentator Ibn Al Taib. He wrote in Baghdad uh, about a millennia ago, the early 1900s, and he has a great quote. He said, "It is said that the purpose of this parable is to clarify what is incumbent on believers." during the life of the present church as regards to perseverance and persistence in a heartfelt, fervent prayer. The faithful are supposed to pray with confidence that if they accomplish this, there is absolutely no doubt that God will come to them with joy, look upon their suffering and their torment, and grant them victory at the appropriate time. That if we go to God, he is going to grant us victory. That is assured. And that's what this parable is supposed to drive home, like Moses and Aaron and her. Victory is assured. If you can be faithful to what God has asked you, the little thing that God has asked you to be faithful in, it is assurance. Um, the other point of this story is that unlike this woman, we face a loving father and not the capricious judge. And the other part, the, the last part is mm. history is not random. And this is really important to me. History is not random. It moves toward a definitive goal. A telos. A telos, right? God will vindicate his people. Always, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what threats lie around, God will always vindicate his people. And that being said, connecting it back to the first reading, if you remember the first reading, I mentioned that you have this scene of God's um, providence through water, through bread, and through meat, framed by two moments of threat and attack. God's providence framed by two moments of threat. Here we have a parable about God's providence. If we only sustain, if we, uh, not sustain, but if we only persevere, if we're not weary, like the second reading says, well, think about it. Right before this, what do we get? A story about the threat that's on the horizon. Pretty much right after this, we get to Palm Sunday, where Jesus enters Jerusalem into threat. So we have a parable about the providence of God surrounded by two stories of threat on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So it's directly tied to the yeah. first reading. The schema, the way that it's set up, is textually almost exactly the same to what we read in Exodus. That when you see threat on one side and you see threat on the other side, if you persevere, I mean, what the parable is trying to say is, look, we look at God like he's this... this um, Unjust judge. Unjust judge, exactly like you said. Because we see threat and because we see danger and because we act out of fear, not out of confidence. Well, what we're coming from is woundedness. We've been tormented yeah. by an assailant and, yes. and we're saying like, are, you need to give me justice against the assailant. So it's it's woundedness from the past and fear into the future. Absolutely. And fear of the judge, for Pete's sake. Right. We act out of fear. And when we move through society and politics and our spiritual lives and whatever it else Acting out of fear, we will fail because we are not called to act out of fear, right? Second right. Timothy, or is it First Timothy? You were not given a, fear, a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power, of confidence, and of self-discipline, yeah. self-control. That's where we're called to act. This persistent widow, in the face of actual adversity, of an actual capricious, mean, evil judge, acts with confidence in his totality because she knows who the true judge is. She can approach this judge with total confidence, with lack of fear, because she knows that ultimately he's not the judge of this world, that there is a judge who is beyond him and above him and Trump and goes <laughs> so far beyond what this judge is capable of, right. that no threat, either from the right or from the left, is actually capable of knocking her down. To the point where that confidence and that fearlessness is so strong that the capricious judge himself fears danger from her. Wow, she has now become a threat to the judge. 
she might punch me in the face. <laughs> yep. And so the one who, from the standards of the world, should be acting out of fear is now acting out of confidence, which leads the powers of the world into fear. Right. Because the power of God is so much bigger than they are. Right. And I think that's what all of these are pushing us and, and trying to strengthen us towards. Yeah. So if you feel insignificant, if you're saying like, gosh, who, what would, who would keep in mind for me? It's exactly where the, like the Lord is ultimately the one who stretches his arms out and they never yeah. drop. Right. That's the other thing is that, is that Moses is the image of, I mean, Jesus is the <coughs> image of Moses on the cross, holding arms his arms outstretched. out, outstretched, outstretched, and right. it never goes down. He is always fighting for you. And like and if nobody you, helps him keep him up. Nobody helps him keep him up. Yeah. Because he himself is the one who is actually pouring out, who is the true realistic judge, the one who reveals man yes. to himself, who actually reveals uh, the, who he is to the nations and the world. So it's like you can go to him and we can cling to him because he will never... The battle is won. That's the other part of it. It's like right. the, the the battle when we when it comes down to it, it's like we, we don't even have, like we just keep going back to the Lord and we say, right. check it out. The, the Lord, we've won. So get, render injustice. And he's saying, I will give you justice. So keep coming back and join yourself to the Lord. That's actually so powerful and profound. And live your life with the confidence that the battle is won. Right. There is not a, we live life as though we don't totally know mm. the outcome of good or evil. Mm. Will evil prevail in the world we're not totally sure no as christians were called to know the battle's already been fought and won and finished and we move forward with confidence of that but we don't do that it's 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 like the fellowship when they go to the black gate at the very end of the, nerd alert <laughs> nerd alert sorry and but yet they still have to fight the battle because exactly. it's like there will come a, a moment of tell us where yeah. it is all revealed that this bad oscar is done and we are called over to the called over to the other side amen amen Ooh, thanks Ooh. scott that, dude i'm, I'm thank you father I'm, I'm like i feel a little bit more heartened good we yeah. all should I yeah think. because it's not up to us yeah that's the bottom line yeah. so we will be back next week god willing <laughs> and uh hope you guys have a great week we will see you then bye the Word in the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.